How's everyone doing? We're a full house this morning. This is fun. Woo! Um, well, welcome, guys. This is Resonate. Uh, my name is Josh. I wear hats. I'm young, and I'm the pastor. So uh, welcome. Um, I'm really excited about what we're going to do today. We kind of slipped into this three-week period in between uh, two series, and I was like, oh, I'll just do a couple one-offs. And it, it kind of just, as, as things do, as you're kind of living this Christian life, and, and Jesus is kind of moving in your life, it kind of, you begin to see a pattern. And so in this, they've all been kind of cohesive. And basically, I've just done the same sermon three times. No, um, but they're, they're all similar in the way that, like, two weeks ago, we talked about the difference between uh, looking, seeing, and beholding, and how there's something different about beholding wonder and awe. And then the next week, uh, we, we talked about what it means to recognize how the space around you actually changes you. And, and this week, what I want to talk about is, is taking it one step further than just the beholding and one step further than just recognizing the space. I, the question I want to like kind of wrestle with this morning is how do we respond when we encounter God? How do we respond when we encounter something that's holier, that's bigger than we can describe, uh, that's bigger than ourselves? Because there is a response. A lot of times we can, they can hit us and we can just pass it right on by. Like, ooh, that was fun, and go. But no, there's a response that actually needs to happen if we want to carry this stuff further, and not just for ourselves, but for the people who are around us in the lives that we're engaged with. Uh, so that's what we're going to talk about, and to do that, I always like to give us just a little roadmap. We're going to talk about um, Olive Garden is in my notes. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, 24-hour photo exhibit, uh, national days, seasons, and how to build a monument. But before we do that, I'm going to pray. Um, there's a lot to cover this morning. Lord God, uh, I'm so grateful uh, for the last three weeks that we've been in. Uh, as we come back in at, at fall, and uh, for us, it's, kinda, it's a new season. Um, so guide us in this. Teach us as we uh, navigate new waters and, um, and truly want to keep our focus on you and uh, in our city that we live in uh, and the community that's around us. Teach us to be good neighbors. Amen. All right. So in the Bible, whenever, uh, especially in the Old Testament, whenever someone encounters God, there is a response. And one of the oldest responses in the book, and in fact, the oldest book in there, the very first book in the Bible, Genesis, the response is always unique. Uh, it, it's, it's always to build something. So whenever anybody encounters God, they turn around and they build something. Jacob, when he encounters God, and we talked about this story a lot in the last three weeks, Jacob is this guy who's on the run, uh, and, and he has to spend a night in the wilderness. And as he does, he, he witnesses this amazing dream. And there's a ladder and there's angels and God is descending up and down the ladder. And then he wakes up and he goes, oh, surely God was in this place. And I, I did not know. And so his response, at, after recognizing that God is in the place, and that's the first step, right? We go, oh, my gosh, God is here. And I, I didn't even recognize that is that he took the rock that he was using as a pillow, not a great night's sleep, uh, and he flipped it on its side, and he built a pillar, right? And we have all sorts of stories from there on out. Abraham, even before Jacob, builds altars whenever he encounters God. He makes a sacrifice on the altar. Moses at Mount Sinai, he's the guy who takes everybody out of Egypt, and once he gets to Mount Sinai, what does he do when he encounters God on that mountain? He builds an altar. So in a weird way, the correct biblical response when we encounter something bigger than ourselves is to build something. It's to actually use it. It's to mark it, to build a monument. It's to mark this off and actually proclaim, ooh, yeah, something big is going on here. Something big is going on here, and I want to build something off 
of it. It's telling the truth of the place and the moment you're in. It's saying, looking around and going, ooh, something great is going on. And we love to mark things. We love it. Look at Instagram. I mean, Instagram exists because we want to mark a moment, right? We want to share that moment with the world, and oftentimes it just looks like our dinner. But mo sometimes it can truly surpass even that. I think a large part of the Christian tradition that we just overlook is this idea of being completely present. Because Jesus was always present with who he was with. Every time, if he was on his way to do something and someone interrupted him and they said, hey, I need healing, I need this, I need that, he would turn and he would fa face them, excuse me, and he would talk with them. He would change his trajectory because he was always present in the moment. He would mark those moments. There's this amazing uh, poem uh, that I came across this week uh, by Jane Kenyon, um, and it's called Otherwise. And I'm just going to read it for you guys because I think this is a really good uh, just example of being present. Since I got out of bed on two strong legs, it might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog up, uphill, up to the birchwood. All morning, I did the work that I love. At noon, I lay down with my mate. It might be otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day, just like this day. But one day, I know, it will be otherwise. And the reason I love that so much is it's calling out the ordinary and kind of pulling it into extraordinary, right? I think the word extraordinary is fascinating because all it is is just more ordinary. <laughs> it's extraordinary. But it's just calling out what would be a normal day and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. It might have been otherwise. And at the end, she even admits, as we all need to do, that one day, it will be otherwise. That we're going to encounter moments in our lives that we go, oh, this is otherwise. But imagine living your life in such a way that even the ordinary becomes extraordinary. That sets us up for when the stuff hits the fan, right? To be able to proclaim things, to be able to actually work through it, to be able to use it. So look around and say, God was in this place, and I, I did not know. See, the, the, the need to mark things is a distinctly human deal. There is no other species posting on Instagram. There's no other species writing down journals. There's no other species that follows a calendar, right? We mark moments, days, minutes, with holidays, with traditions, with new dinners, all this sort of stuff that you can do to sort of mark something and say, here I am. And the biggest way we're doing that today, thanks to technology, is to take pictures. I stumbled upon this, this just yesterday. Uh, this is crazy. This is um, by an artist, what's his name? Uh, Eric Kesson. Uh, and I don't know if you can actually make out what that is. This is a room. And what Eric Kesson decided to do was figure out how many photographs were uploaded to the internet, just the whole, that, that's big eye internet, in 24 hours in just one day. And then he proceeded to print out every single photo from that 24 hours. It took him almost a year to do so. Uh, and the result was they filled an entire gallery in a church with all the pictures. So if you want to keep going here, you can see just wall to wall. The next slide, please. You can just kind of throw through these. Eric Kesson. So the need to mark things, obviously, is human, right? It's one, of our, it's one of our key traits. But the question is, do we really need a room and a church filled with this many photos? Are we marking things correctly? 
Are we actually saying God was in this place and I, I did not know? Because think about it, within 24 hours, if you were able to look at over a million images that they printed out, I mean, just think of how much stuff you're taking in on a daily basis. As you're driving and billboards are there, as, as you're flipping through your phone and all the pictures, as you're, just you're, the amount of images that we are assaulted with today is way more than it has ever been. So it's more important today than ever to kind of learn these skills to go, wow, wait, let me just stand here. Let me just sit in this. Instead of just scrolling by, instead of just walking by, instead of just driving by, let me just stand in this and learn from it. What does this have to teach me? Uh, in the Christianese tradition, which is the language of Christians uh, nationwide, uh, we have a lang- or word that we beat to death uh, that is sort of cliche now, and I never want to use it, but this morning I would love to take it back, if not only for a brief moment, and that's seasons. If you've ever been in sort of a, a larger church context, or even just a church context, you may hear people talk about, oh, this is just, this is just a joyous season in our life, or this, that's just a season, that's a season, that's a season. It's really annoying. Anyway, it, it's, it's been hijacked, because the actual heart behind that idea is completely rooted in the Bible and in our story. There's a, there's a verse in Ecclesiastes 3. Do we have that first slide? It says there's a time for everything. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away. There's more. A time to tear, uh, tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Is that the last one there, Alex? Perfect. <laughs> There's a time, a season, for everything. And I mean everything. Do you guys know how many national days there are? So just today, Today, in September 9th, there is a National Teddy Bear Day going on, a Care Bear Share Your Care Day, National Wiener Schnitzel Day, National Pet Memorial Day, National Hug Your Hound Day, I will be doing that after this service, National Grandparents Day. That all happens today. There's this incessant need to mark. So I got really fascinated because, you know, my pastor, I got way too much time on my hands. Uh, this week, with the idea of these national days, I was like, how many of these bad boys are there? We've marked this calendar so crazily that it just goes, there's actually, there's a Google app that'll sync the nationalday.com, which runs this whole thing. It'll sync their calendar with your calendar. I did it, huge mistake. It just looked like this giant, just like wreck. So I wanted to figure out how many days there actually were, uh, national days in a year, and it was infuriating because they did not list that on their website. So naturally, I got my little magnifying glass out, did some Sherlock Holmesing, uh, and figured out, we took one month, I took July, don't ask me why, it was the first month that I found. I opened it up, and I found that there were 131 national days within the 31-day month of July. Absurd. How are we supposed to keep up with all of this? And Twitter is a frenzy, right? So 131 within one month. So a little crude math, I just figured, like, let's, let's just say that's the average for every month. And then I multiplied that uh, by 12, and I did not memorize this number. It's uh, 1,356 days in a 365 calendar year. 
1,356. And then, as I looked further, I found out that they did indeed list the number that they had, and I did not have to do that. I could have led with the fact that there's 1,500, but I did the work and I wanted you to know. So anyway, there's 1,500 registered national days. And it's completely fake because there is no sort of government connection. There's no sort of officialness to it. It's literally just the company that's churning these out. And what they do is they send it out to like 20,000 radio stations around the country, and they just say, today's National Slurpee Day. And then all of a sudden, what? It's National Slurpee Day. Let's sell some Slurpees, right? So I figured, how hard could it be to register a national day myself? And it turns out, not very hard to, at all. So October 7th <laughs> is actually National Resonate Day on the calendar. <laughs> And I, uh, I submitted it. Do we have that picture? Here's the submission form. Uh, what's the name of the National Day Week month you'd like to designate? Resonate. What day slash week? Uh, October 7th. Give us the story. I said, we're a church. I'm the pastor. I'm actually just doing this for a sermon illustration. However, I think it would be absolutely phenomenal if this actually worked. Additional comments. Please make this happen. <laughs> I got an email back, and it worked. So a lot of you also know that I have a very, it's very special in my heart, uh, and it's called Joshua Holiday. Now, I didn't want to put my name involved with this. Um, but I did want uh, the world to know about Mahalo Basically, it comes out of this. Uh, my wife and I went to Hawaii on our honeymoon. It was amazing. Uh, and, and Chelsea is an amazing planner, and I am totally not that. And she had it just regimented. So we had activities. We were doing all this fun stuff. But by about day three, I was like, you know what? I just need to, I just need to, we need to burn one of these days. I got to take a day where we just have absolutely no plans, and it turned out to be a glorious day in which I sat on a beach and watched Breaking Bad, true story, <laughs> for four straight hours. It was grand, and so I marked this day in my mind, and I called it Official Joshua Holiday, and I put it in my calendar as a recurring thing, so every year around August 5th, around the week after our wedding, I will celebrate a day at which I will have no plans whatsoever. It's an excellent life rhythm. You should all do it. By the way, it's now official because I put this in here. Hi there, me again, the pastor. Just seeing if this one's more appealing to you, let me know. Additional comments, please make this happen. And guys, it happened. Wow. So, deep in our souls, we have this need to mark something, to pause, to reflect, to do it. It's so easy to mark the frivolous stuff in our lives, but I think, why is it that we're doing this, that there are over 1,500 national days, and yet it's so hard for us to just carve out a spiritual rhythm to mark moments and say, hey, something holy is going on in this place, and I, I didn't know. But I can recognize it now, and I can move forward. And this all comes out of this amazing human tradition because one of the first commands we get from God himself is once creation is all displayed, he goes, okay, now I want you to go out and name everything. Mark everything. Give it a name. Think about how much trust that is. The fact that the divine, this, this creator of the entire universe, just created it and then he entrusted us to say, hey, now I want you to name it. I trust you that much. Because when we give something a name, we give, we give care towards it. When you give something a name, you're forced to care for it. I think a large part of the atrocities that happened in the Holocaust where they would rip people's names away and replace it with a number was because when something has a name, we're forced to reckon with it. We're forced to care for it. We're forced to view it as something with dignity. 
we're forced to actually see that, wait a minute, something more is going on here. And so we begin naming things, and that's awesome. And we begin marking things, and we begin uh, just sort of collecting things. And then we get these things called traditions that come out of that, right? We figured out, let's, let's celebrate the birth of Jesus on December 25th, and we marked that, and so we celebrate that. And even further, just in traditions that we have, maybe from other faith communities or whatever it is, there's traditions that run deep, right? In my family, we would not sit down until my mom had sat at the table. That was a tradition, right? All sorts of traditions that come out of this. But here's the deal. I think that's the thing. We're, we're so good at this that we often just barrage ourselves with so much tradition that eventually that tradition, that naming, that marking might actually keep other people out. It might actually keep us from truly engaging and loving people. Because here's the lie we believe. Once we named it, it can never be named again. That's already, this is the way it is. And Jesus dealt with that all the time. The biggest key thing in Jesus' living ministry was this. He would go out and he would say this line, and it was the biggest sermon that he ever did. He'd say, you have heard it this way, but I tell you this. You've heard it this way. And he lists sort of the, the, the commands, the laws of the Torah, the laws that these people, his audience, when he was talking, would have been seeped in. They probably would have followed eight or nine laws before they even got to the mountain that Jesus is talking on, right? And here he is renaming things, saying, you've heard it this way, but I tell you, it's this. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, and they were amazed with his teaching because he taught like someone with authority. And basically what that means is that authority was a really big deal in the rabbi culture. If you wanted followers, if you wanted to be a legitimate rabbi, you would have to be confirmed by two other rabbis. And that was when you were given authority. But you were given authority, and it was a rigorous process, and it needed two people to confirm. And so we see this in the scripture with Jesus when he's baptized by John the Baptist, and then when God comes and affirms him and says, this is my son, listen to him. He spoke with someone with authority, and the whole thing about authority was the rabbis would send you out when you finally had something to say. There are a lot of great public speakers, a lot of like awesome people that can talk really, really well, great TED Talks out there, but a lot of times I, I scratch my head going like, they're really good at saying things, but I don't know if they actually have something to say. <laughs> and so this rabbi would work and work and work, and then once he had something to say, he would receive authority from two others and he would be sent out. So authority meant you have something to say, and something to say that's brand new, something that you've never heard so when, the, when he finishes this huge, long Sermon on the Mount, this beautiful opus, the people were amazed because they'd heard something they'd never heard before. When was the last time in a religious community that we walked out going, oh, I heard something that I've never heard before? If we're not experiencing it, that's not it. I've never heard that before. Just take the Sabbath. So Jesus was constantly at odds with this idea of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is this idea that uh, on the seventh day of the week, because this is when God rested at the end of creation, uh, in the Jewish culture, they would take that day and they would set it aside, and absolutely no work could be done in that scenario. And they did this thing, uh, the rabbis, the Pharisees, the high priests, they did this thing they called fencing in the Torah, which basically meant like if the law was you can't do work, then they would put a fence around that so that you couldn't even get close to not doing work. 
So that meant like if you picked up a shovel, even though you're not doing work, if you pick up a shovel, if you pick up a shovel, you could end up doing work. So now we're going to write in a law in Leviticus where you cannot pick up a shovel. And so when you read Leviticus, it's just all of these rules, and they expand, and they expand, and they expand, and they expand to the point that you're like, how is anyone keeping track of these? I mean, it's just so much. And so when Jesus gets there, he's constantly at odds with his people going like, I think you've lost the whole rest idea here. I think you've lost the idea that like this was actually just set aside to heal you, not to pile more on top of you. He even said at one point, he said, the Sabbath is made for man. I, I'm outside of that. You need to understand it was made for you. It was made for rest. But he would do crazy things like he would heal people on the Sabbath or he would do work on the Sabbath or he would, and he would always do it in very subtle ways. Like there's one verse where you would pass it right by, but him and the disciples are walking through a field and they're picking grain. And basically, you're not supposed to do that because that's work on the Sabbath, but it's just this subtle thing. Of like, it's not really work, but it's almost just them going like, <laughs> screw you, like, we're, we're going to show you that you can work on Sabbath, that this is, this is more important, The humanity is more important than the rules and the laws and all of the stuff that is, excuse me, fencing you in. Because these people were so seeped in their tradition in their religion, it, it bled into every facet of their lives. And how refreshing is it that when Jesus, this divine who manifests itself in a human being, when God finally shows up, his biggest thing is like, yeah, no, the, the rule things, like, okay, let's, let's just get to the core of what they are. Let's reassess this. Let's actually look at them in a beautiful way instead of a stressful way. And even more so, he kind of comes and he shows up and he's just like, hey, chill out, everyone. <laughs> I want to give you rest. And I think we can be guilty of the same crime of overanalyzing every single text, every single little thing, when really we should just be looking at the core. We can spend years, thousands of hours in an environment and totally miss the point. The best example of this that I found this week uh, is this. Uh, this is a, uh, a copywriter and computer uh, programmer, and uh, she forced a bot, an AI bot, to watch over 1,000 hours of Olive Garden commercials uh, and then asked it to write an Olive Garden commercial of its own. 1,000 hours is 41 days of straight-up Olive Garden commercials. I don't even know there's that many, but it, yeah, she had the bot do that. So this is the script that the bot wrote. It says, a group of friends laughs at a dinner table. A waitress comes to deliver what could be considered food. Waitress, <laughs> pasta nachos for you? We see the pasta nachos. They're warm and defeated. Friend one, the menu is here. Waitress, lasagna wings with extra Italy. We see the lasagna wings. There's more Italy than necessary. Friend two, I shall eat Italian citizens. Waitress, unlimited sticks. Waitress, gluten classico from the kitchen. We the gluten classico, we believe the waitress that is from the kitchen. We have no reason not to believe. Friend four says nothing. Friend one, what's wrong, friend four? Friend four says nothing. Friend four, what's wrong, friend four? Friend four smiles wide. Her mouth is full of secret soup. And at the end, it's cut off, but it says Olive Garden. When you're here, you're here. <laughs> you can spend thousands of hours steeped in something you believe to be correct and totally miss the mark. Instead of marking something, you can totally miss the mark, which, by the way, in the ancient Hebrew tradition, the word for sin actually means miss the mark. We can miss what's going on if we're not paying attention to what's all around us. There's so much beauty. There's so much beauty. Why are we focusing on all the little stuff? that gets in the way. 
There's a story in the scripture. Uh, it's one of my favorite. It's about. It's called a man born blind. Um, and as Jesus encounters this blind man who was born blind, uh, and that's an important note because there are lots of other in other traditions and in other uh, like in the Talmud and in other uh, other texts that point to uh, miracles that were done with people who were blinded later in life, right? So there's a lot of room there for like, okay, but this could all be like kind of an elaborate hoax, right? So they they put in this this detail that he was born blind to let you know nothing like this has ever happened before. This is the first time anyone's done anything with a man born blind. And so Jesus is, they're walking along the way. Actually, we have the scripture. I won't, I'll, let, I'll let the Bible do the talking. Um, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, uh, that he was born blind? Neither. This man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So let's just pause right here. What's happening right here? is you have this rabbi with authority, and then you have disciples. And it's really important to note that a disciple's job, we just give this, like, this, we often talk about them like a group that just can never get it right. But actually, the disciple's job was, in some degree, to not get it right. They were supposed to learn from their mistakes, but they were supposed to watch their rabbi incessantly, down to the fact that they would watch how the rabbi physically walked, and they would have to mimic how he walked. So what they're doing here is being good students. They're looking at the situation, and they see that Jesus has seen this man born blind, and their first question is, okay, what do you have to teach us about this? But they lead in a totally wrong direction. They lead with a theological question rather than a question about the person. There's a blind person, but they want to get down to the ethereal God stuff, like who sinned that this man would be blind? And Jesus kind of goes, neither, which is the most infuriating religious response ever. Like, neither he nor his mom. You're missing the point. You're missing the point. And he goes even further, and he says, he's blind, but now that I have shown up, this is going to turn into something glorious. Something this, this handicap that this man has dealt with his entire life, I'm going to turn it around, and I'm going to make it glorious. So there's tons more scripture, but we're running a little late on time, so let me just zip it up. He he bends down, and he, he spits in his hands, and then he takes some, and he makes mud. He takes some dirt, and he makes mud, and he places the mud on the eyes of this man, and he says, go to the pool of Siloam, and Siloam means scent. So he goes to this pool, and he, he bathes in the pool, and he comes back, and this is the best part. This character that has so far said nothing starts to get real feisty real quick. So where's the man born blind that goes and gets healed? Where's the first place he goes? He goes straight into the temple. Now, the reason he does this is if you were a beggar, and he was, he was begging and he was blind, you would be placed, your family would place you on, in high traffic areas. And the most high traffic area that you could possibly have in Jerusalem was the temple. So if you were entering the temple, there would be dozens, if not hundreds, of people that were sick or hurting or needed help, and so they were out there asking for money, and it was so high traffic. And, I mean, what better place to kind of pull on the heartstrings and the guilt strings than when you're walking into church, right? So they're like, we'll, we'll get some money here. So this man that was now on the outside and was not allowed in now marches straight to the inside of the temple. And people begin buzzing because they've seen this man. They've seen this man at the steps of the gate, and they know that's, that's supposed to be the blind man, right? That's supposed to be the, that's, that's John. I've known him since he was a kid. He's, he's supposed to be blind. What is going on? And so they ask him what happened, and he said, uh, this, this Jesus, he healed me. And they go, that, that can't be true. This is the Sabbath. So here's what Jesus did very intentionally. 
He healed him on the Sabbath, and going three steps further, as Jesus often does, he bent down, and there's, it's always like, why did he have to spit, right, and, and make mud? Like, that, couldn't he just go, like, sight, right? Why did he have to spit in there? Well, the grand move towards the Pharisees and towards the priests in there was when you spit and you made mud, you were making bricks, and that was strictly forbidden on the Sabbath. So Jesus takes this moment, marks it, and builds something right in this man, right in front of the temple, right in front of everyone, going three steps further. So the man comes back, and he goes into the temple, and he proclaims that Jesus has healed him. And so the, the people are all abuzz, and they're like, that sounds crazy. I don't think that's true. Let's go get the Pharisees. They'll know what to do, right? Let's go get the religious figures. They'll have the answers. So they come, and they get caught up on the fact that it's on the Sabbath, and they can't let it go. They just can't. They're like, it, it, healing does not happen on the Sabbath, so this man must be from the devil, right? It cannot be, like, from God, because God doesn't do that. God doesn't work this day. God takes this day off and mandates that we take this day off. There's no way this could be of God. So they start getting in arguments, and, and, and the guy keeps coming back, just frustrated, going like, no, look, all I know, this is my favorite line of scripture, all I know is that I was blind, and now I can see. They want theological answers. They want to prove this in all sorts of different little ways. And all he's saying is, guys, I don't know the theological answer. All I know is that I was blind before, and now I can see, and all of you should just be freaking out about this. Like, why are we hung up on this religious conversation when a miracle has happened? I was blind, and now I can see. And so the Pharisees get even more infuriated because they're like, this guy's not giving us any answers. He can't be who he says he is. Let's get his parents in here and actually confirm that this man was born blind. So his parents come in, and they are now summoned from the Pharisees. They're, they're like, they dropped their kid off at the gate. They've done their thing for the day. And they're now coming in like, to the principal's office, and they're very, very, very nervous. If this family did not have the means to support their son on their own, they had to drop him off to beg for his sustenance. If they went in and said the wrong thing or were kind of excommunicated from the temple, that would have major economic repercussions for them. So they literally go in scared to death, and all they say is, here's what we know. That is our son. <laughs> here's what we don't know, how it happened. And he is of age. He can speak for himself. Now, the he is of age thing is super crazy. And again, we could skip right by that. But the fact that they say he is of age, normally in that kind of culture, in that context, you would just say he's an adult or he is is of this many years, but he is of age is a really specific thing. So some scholars believe that this man born blind could indeed have been around 13 or 14 years old. That's a little head trippy, right? It doesn't really matter if it is or not, but it's kind of cool. So he could have been 13 or 14 years of age, and here's his parents just going like, I'm not stepping in the middle of this. He's, he's of age, let him speak to it. And they say, tell the truth to God, give glory to God. How were your eyes opened? And he responds by saying, this is amazing. I've tried to explain this to you over and over and over again. And he ends the line where he says, I mean, surely you can see that this man is a prophet. Do you want to be his disciples too? And with that, the Pharisees promptly kick him out of the temple. <laughs> Game over. But at the end of the story, the story doesn't end with just the boot. The story ends with Jesus meeting him outside the temple. Because this man was 
bold enough to proclaim what he knew to be true, even under the scrutiny of all those religious people, even though they wanted to say, no, it can't, God doesn't work like that. He said, no, I've encountered something. It's marked me. And so God does work like that. And I'm going to proclaim that right in the middle of the temple. God does work like that. And so Jesus asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? He says, tell me who that is, and I will believe. And he says, you've seen him now with your eyes. And with that, the man believed forever marked, forever changed, and also forever outside the temple. People who are bold enough to call out what they see, these are the people Jesus is going to meet outside the temple. The bold, the brash, the people that are going to say it like it is because I was blind and now I can see. There's this amazing rabbinic story. Uh, it's about the, the Red Sea. In the, in the Jewish tradition, the Red Sea parting is, is known as like the, the top miracle. It's the biggest thing that God had ever done. He parted the Red Sea, and then they were able to walk through it and get away from the Egyptians and come to freedom on the other side. So at the end of the Red Sea is the first time these slaves are actually going to be free. And it's this amazing thing. Big staff in, boom, old water walking through miraculous walls of water on either side, this huge thing. But uh, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner um, tells this Midrash story. Midrash is a, is a sort of wrestling with the text. So it's a story to help describe what could be going on inside the story. And he says there are two men named Ru- Reuven and Shimon. Reuven and Shimon are, are, are walking, and their heads are down. They're kind of grumpy folks. And the, the Red Sea has been parted, and they start walking through. And then Reuven says to Shimon, oh, this, this ground is muddy. Like, it's all muddy. What, what, is, what is this? We, we come out of Egypt, and now we're back in here, and it's muddy. I'd rather go back to Egypt. And he says, yeah, this is just like the, the slime pits in Egypt. Like, this is, this is just as bad. I don't understand when we follow people out here. I don't get it. All looking down, mumbling, complaining, looking down, mumbling, complaining. That by the time they reached the other side, because they never looked up, they were never able to see the miracle. By the time they get to the other side and people are singing and dancing and laughing and saying we are finally free, they can't understand because for them, the miracle never happened. It might as well have never existed because they refused to look up, to get out of the mud, to witness the miracle. You are all walking within a miracle. The fact that there's breath in your lungs is a miracle. And we can choose to see the miracle or we can choose to keep our head down in the mud and keep griping and complaining. But the biggest work, the greatest thing we can do is to lift our heads up and truly just stand there. One last story. There's a guy named Danny Brigham. His name is Father Danny, and he was a radical. He was the first Jesuit priest to ever end up on the FBI's most wanted list. That's a a goal, right? I mean, that's crazy stuff. I mean, you can keep playing. <laughs> hey, thank you. Father Danny uh, went to a uh, uh, draft place uh, during the Vietnam War, uh, and he took out with a group, what they called them the Epson 9, he, he took out all of the draft papers, all of the draft cards, and he, he threw them on the ground, and he lit them on fire, and then they all knelt to the ground, and they started reciting the Lord's Prayer just as loudly as they possibly could. So Father Danny was in prison for four years. Father Danny comes out. He he does all sorts of work against nuclear war. He travels to Afghanistan. He just brings peace everywhere he goes, radical peace. 
And so when the uh, war in Afghanistan was about to happen and people were scared and they didn't know what to do because they're about to go into another war, this group of peace activists get together and they invite Father Danny to come and hang out with them and learn from him because they're like, this guy's gone through it. What can we learn? Father Danny brings a handful of poems and he starts reading poetry to them and then they, they're chatting and he's just very nonchalant. And they grow frustrated because they're like, this guy isn't giving us anything. So they finally just ask the question, like, what should we do? Father Danny looks up and he's like, when I was a child, the most important thing someone said to me was, don't just do something, stand there. Catch that real quick. Don't just do something, stand there. Sometimes doing something is not the appropriate response. Standing there, looking up, witnessing the moment that is around us and what God has for in that moment is the bravest thing that we can do. Just standing. Are you willing to stand there? Let's pray together. Lord, uh, I just pray as, as this... Sunday comes to a close, our week is beginning, that you would make us people that are, um, that are willing to stand in it, that are willing to stand there uh, and bring us back all the more.